Sue Stanfield in the History Department at UTEP. And today I'll be talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Lowry Martin from the Department of Languages and Linguistics about the French presence in North America. So I'm kind of curious, typically in history classes, when we cover that early colonial period, the 1600s, the early 1700s, we typically focus on the Spanish and the British in North America and breeze past, maybe give 15, 20 minutes to the French and the Dutch. And I was wondering if you would make a case for why I'm teaching the class wrong, why we need to have more France as part of our study of colonial America. Most of the uh, British policy, colonial policy, was always in some way in reaction to French colonial policy. So you can't really um, disengage one from the other. Um, France got into the uh, imperial game late compared to uh, Spain and to Great Britain, but it made up a lot of um, time or at least territory. Um, It's important because France had land all the way from the Outer Banks of what is now modern-day Canada all the way down to um, eventually Haiti. So this great amount of territory uh, that eventually becomes incorporated into the United States um, is always um, having either an impact on British expansion or is influencing and shaping a British policy. Um, not as much as in the, with, uh, with Spain, at least in the, in the uh early part of uh, the colonial American um, experience, but um, eventually it does um, have even a a great impact on Spanish colonial policy. Um, Other reasons I think that it's important to know about uh, France and its influence in the the United States is because as the borders continue to shift, even into the 20th century, um, particularly along the Canadian border, French remains very important. And for our students here at UTEP, issues that uh, we see along the borderlands, for instance, the um, refusal to allow uh, Spanish-speaking students to speak Spanish in class uh, in the 19th and 20th century was the exact same dynamics that were happening along our our borders in uh, Maine, Vermont, um, New Hampshire, and in southern Louisiana. So those are some of the, the reasons. But also, um, just culturally, um, our, our very capital is designed by uh, a French architect, uh, uh, Pierre Charles L'Enfant. And, um, you know, a great deal of American cuisine uh, was also influenced by, by uh, French um, culinary history. So there are all kinds of ways that French culture has influenced and become embedded into um, what we consider uh, United States culture or American culture without us even really knowing what its roots are. Well, I know, um, you know, looking at a map, um, let's say of, of North America in 1700, it's such a tiny little sliver that will be uh, British And it's such a huge presence that is French and then as well as Spanish. Um, And so it seems, is it, um, and I believe the French actually began settling or at least trading amongst uh, American Indians Mm -hmm. before the British even arrive in a permanent setting. They absolutely do. Um, We think about Spanish colonial um, expansion in the and beginning really at the at the 
in the 1490s and continuing. France was not that far behind. Uh, in the uh, 1560s, uh, France already had established colonies in South Carolina and Florida, and it actually beaten um, Spain with St. Augustine, which is considered the long, the oldest mm-hmm. city in the United States. Uh, it was called, um, what was it called? Fort, uh, Fort Caroline. And uh, it was eventually eradicated by the Spaniards because the French that had settled it were Huguenots. They were Protestants fleeing Span- uh, religious persecution in France. And uh, the good Spanish Catholics did not want them uh, within 60 kilometers. But going back to the point, France actually was in the United States and in what eventually became the American colonies before the British. So um, interestingly, although the Great Britain settled along the eastern seaboard, and, and um, as I'll maybe we'll bring up later, had a, a larger, much, much larger, exponentially larger population. France had uh, exponentially larger land. We went all the way from the Outer Banks, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland Island, um, across Canada, um, all the way to parts of what are now Idaho and down to the Mississippi Basin, including Texas. So uh, it really was a, a very large land area. And for that um, alone, I think uh, France deserves a little bit more uh, uh, interest when we discuss American colonial history because, for instance, the first city in Missouri was founded by the French. Uh, we think of the South as belonging to Great Britain or to um, particularly Florida, the Spaniards. But in fact, Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, Mobile, Alabama, these were the original capitals of what was called at the time uh, La Nouvelle France. And um, those eventually capitals migrated westward and became what is now New Orleans. But there is a, a lot of undiscovered and unexplored um, French history in the United States. Well, I know when we think of France's presence in um, North America, we tend to either think of it as Canada or along the Mississippi, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the the French were involved in the Caribbean and um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the purpose of this early French presence and also was it profitable for them? Is this something that they were going to fight to defend? Absolutely it was. Spain uh, was making a fortune off of its colonies in uh, Peru, Mexico, mining silver, gold, and other things, uh, which at the time was uh, filling the treasuries of Spain. Therefore, it was much more able to launch wars and to fund them. France wanted in on the action. And uh, what they did originally was they just sort of had a um, non-recognized naval force, the buccaneers that were pirates that were sent to uh, raid basically the Spanish galleons and to take uh, as much uh, loot and other goods as they could back to France. What happens is particularly in Haiti, which is really uh, becomes France's most important colony, they uh, stay out on some of the the, the smaller islands around um, what is at the time Hispanola or Santo Domingo. And they this is almost a necessary island to, to cut or to cross by to get to cross the Atlantic on the way back to Spain. And so it becomes very rich. And there is an island called um, Isla de Tortuga that the French buccaneers originally just sort of uh, made their home base for raiding. And they moved in then to the western side of Hispaniola uh, 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 and they uh, eventually have such a presence that 
later, Spain, in a, in a war, cedes uh, the western side, one-third of the island to France, which becomes the, the modern colony of Haiti. Interestingly, Haiti um, becomes the, one of the very most profitable colonies in the Western Hemisphere, whether it's Spanish, Dutch, French, or English. Um, by seven, the late um, 18th century, that one section of the island is producing, uh, I believe it is, 60% of the world's coffee and 40% of the world's sugar. So it is making a fortune for France. And we all need coffee and, and we sugar. And we all need coffee and sugar. Uh, right. you can, uh, what would France be without its, its baking yeah. baking goods, right? So that sugar was very important. Well, um, as we know, the first and really only successful slave revolt in North, Car- North America is in what's now Haiti. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what um, what was slavery like on the island? Is it similar to what we see in uh, British North America, or is Caribbean slavery um, different? Well, I'm not an expert on American slavery, um, but what I can tell you is I think that there are a lot of parallels. Um, besides Brazil and certain ports in the south of the United States, Haiti had the largest um, slave market or the largest slave influx of any place in the, in the New World. And um, by the time that we get to the Haitian Revolution, there are more than 10 to 1 uh, blacks to whites or to white Europeans. And so you can imagine the amount of slaves that had to be imported from Africa to work in the, in the sugar cane fields, the coffee plantations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was a strictly um, economic proposition. There were literally manuals written in French that, were, that's, that circulated among plantation owners and even in mainland France in the, in the, metropole, in the metropole that had um, sort of scientifically figured out how much labor you could get per slave working them from, from sunrise to sunset on the minimum amount of food to produce the maximum amount of labor before they died. Um, there are also lots of, of historical documents that talk about the brutality of uh, the, that the slaves received, everything from amputations to um, being put in barrels with studs to to being boiled in uh, sugarcane vats. It's, it's incredibly gruesome. Um, so it is very parallel. And um, one of the things that comes out of France is something called Le Code Noir, which because there was such an importation of slaves to the free world that were mixing with um, white French colonizers, that it was a uh, some of the earliest laws talking about uh, how slaves could be treated, what you could and could not get from their labor, et cetera. And it lasted um, for centuries. A very important footnote is that while uh, we're talking about the parallels between French slavery and uh, the slavery that went on in in Great Britain and in the United States, if you were a slave but set foot on French soil, you were automatically free. Slavery never existed within French territory only in its colonies. So this is something that, is, that definitely does um, separate it from many other colonial powers. That's a really interesting point. I know um, the Somerset case in the 1700s in England uh, 
basically puts that into law um, in a more official way that while slavery still remains in their uh, outlying areas, if you if you step foot on on the island of England, you would become free. Um, and I've always assumed that the fairly aggressive fugitive slave laws that you see uh, coming, um, first ones in the 1790s and up through the 1850s, is an answer to that, that, you know, just stepping on free territory in the U.S. does not, not make, make you, you free, free. Um, as opposed to French and British traditions. So that's really interesting to learn about the French. France did, uh, in fact, um, litigate some of these uh, issues, um, but it was always clear that you were going to remain free. And an interesting footnote, uh, most students will have heard of the Three Musketeers and Alexandre Dumas, the writer. His father was a Haitian slave. Uh, and when he set foot into France, uh, even though he came with his white father, he sued for his own freedom and won it. So um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting little side note of how actually historical figures that we might not even connect to, this, to these laws and to this way of being actually... Uh, used it. And see, and now it's making me uh, think back to uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings when he takes her, his um, slave and concubine, to France. Um, she is made aware that because she is in Paris, that she could stay and be free. But there's some form of negotiations, uh, probably because she's pregnant at the time and wanting to be economically secure. She she gives that freedom up to go back and be supported in some way in in Virginia, and so um, these laws in other countries really um, have a huge effect in shaping how how the United States evolves and changes as well. Well, I was wondering, um, you know, why if if Haiti is the one successful slave revolt. Uh, why does it work there and it doesn't, like the Stono Rebellion in in the um, U.S.? Why, why is Haiti successful? There are probably a lot of reasons that it was uh, successful. And I guess we'd have to de determine successful. It was successful in becoming uh, a, a non-slave uh, country but and, and also, you know, not being under French rule. But it... Uh, went back and forth uh, as far as how blacks were going to be treated, even by black um, politicians. Um, after uh, the George Washington of the Haitian Revolution, whose name is Toussaint Louverture, uh, after he, they won their first round of independence, uh, actually tried to convince the slaves to go back to the fields because they did not have any other way of uh, maintaining a lifestyle. Um, why was it successful? One thing, because there are exponentially less whites on the island. You're much more cut off from getting aid or from getting help. Um, also, those that could have stayed, there was a, basically a white flight uh, at, at, at different points where um, not only white Europeans and or particularly white French plantation owners, but people of color uh, also fled um, and those two elements, I think, combined helped to make that a more uh, successful revolution than, or, yeah, fight for freedom than in other parts of um, the colonial Americas. But certainly, 
Um, there are a lot of political things going on that 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 helped that, um, which is certainly worth noting that France had just or was going through uh, the French Revolution, and so it had its hands full with the problems at home. In fact, when we have the uh, 1791, we start the Haitian Revolution, we're in the, the reign of terror in France. So um, this was sort of a, an afterthought in, in many ways. While it was a big financial um, boon for the French economy, uh, France was really just trying to keep its own country together. Um, so were um, the slaves in Haiti aware of uh, sort of the instability in France. How did they? Absolutely. How did they spread the word? How did they uh, move towards a revolution? One of the interesting things I learned uh, when I started preparing this course was that I always had worked under the false assumption that news traveled very slowly because we have the Great Atlantic Ocean and it takes months or at least a month to uh, cross, and so you don't keep up with the news. But what I found was was uh, paintings of uh, Port-au-Prince and other ports in Haiti that were just filled with ships. So ships are actually coming every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is, a, a, there is actually a news cycle, very much like CNN and other news <laughs> things. They're coming because you have ships coming to port, uh, and as soon as people get off, they want to talk. You've got people at the docks that are, that are you know, uh, unloading, talking to the sailors. And so information actually traveled very quickly. And interesting, interestingly, it was not just the, the, the uh, white French plantation owners or businessmen that knew, but this trickled down very quickly because of the slaves working on the docks. They would hear, and it made its way very quickly uh, across the island. So the French slaves actually did know uh, about the revolution in France, and they also learned very, very quickly about the ideal of uh, a French Enlightenment that was the foundation of the French Revolution, which was um, égalité, fraternité, et liber- or liberté, I've got the wrong order, but that's the, the three things, so liberty, equality, and fraternity. And um, this actually leads the people of color who form a business class in Haiti at the time to go as a delegation to uh, the... Um, French equivalent of, of parliament or of Congress and to plead for their liberty, for their, for their freedom. And they indeed win because they convince the French revolutionaries that if this is, these are the principles of the Republic, then they should also be applied to Haiti. So Lafayette's document, the rights of man is all men, not yes. just white men. Yes. Can I just give you another quick thing? When you ask how does France, uh, French, colonial history impact uh, the United States or why should it be taught more? This is a very good point. The idea of human rights comes from France. And it's something that now in the 21st century uh, around the world we talk about. But the, the very concept of human beings having human rights, which seems so foreign to us now, actually is born in the French Revolution. So the Haitian Revolution ends, what is it, 1802? 1804. Well, 1804, it's finalized. So the United States is still a really young nation then. And so um, after, after Haiti claims, you know, it's the second successful democratic revolution, how does the United States diplomatically react? Not well, as you can imagine. Um, Jefferson uh, wants a total trade embargo. Um That's right. He's president. He's president and he does not exactly. And uh, he's from a slaveholding state. Um, The the ramifications of having um, slaves rise up 
that and I, I you know I want to emphasize that slaves are are considered like uh, subhuman, right? So that you would, these these creatures, these almost you know that are treated like animals, are suddenly using their voice, standing up to white power from from the colonies or from the, from Europe, is frightening. Um, it's very frightening for the American South, and um, Jefferson wants a, an embargo partially because France. Our, our great ally wants it because they do not want to lose their colony. There is some American pragmatism that goes on, and so we agreed to um, not ship arms but contraband because we also want to expand our uh, spheres of influence, and we figure this is a great uh, future trading partner, which, in fact, uh, it does become a trading partner uh, all the way in, in, a, in, a, in a fairly potentially wealthy nation until – uh, I'd say maybe the 1920s when uh, the European powers and including the United States basically deforest the island. Mm. So um, United States policy was very anti-Haitian uh, and we did not recognize uh, Haiti as a nation until 1862 and we were in the middle of the Civil War. So that makes some sense. We have the slaveholding senators yes. outside have left the the United States and joined the Confederacy so it's easy Easier for the Senate to... To suddenly recognize. Okay, that works. Yeah. So um, as a professor of French culture, um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how the French have shaped the United States. Well, I think that uh, we can start with the capital of the United States because um, its very design comes from French architecture. It comes from French planning. It comes from... Uh, their vision of how a city should work. Um, but more than that, I think that um, every or most Western European countries, there is, there's a, um, a symbol. And for the United States, it's been the Statue of Liberty. And that sounds sort of cheesy, but it's interesting that uh, this came as a sign of friendship. France has a miniature Statue of Liberty that's on the Seine in Paris. But it, it, it actually provided us what became the symbol of the United States, the light to the world. Um, but much more than that, I would start with by saying there would not be a United States without France. And I think that's just a historical fact. The, the material, the, the money uh, and resources that France sent to the United States to the, to the colonizers uh, was um, crucial in their battle or in their war against Great Britain. Um, I don't think many people know this. Certainly it's not talked about much, but one of the major reasons that we have the French Revolution is because the French king, Louis XVI, spent so much money, over a billion livres, which I don't know what that would even be in today's uh, money markets, uh, to support uh, our our revolution. And, of course, they had uh, their own interest in it. It wasn't strictly, um, you know, charity, but it still was a really, really uh, a, a big investment in the United States. So from our very beginning, France has influenced um, the United States and our laws, it's influenced them. I remember when I uh, uh, visited Versailles, I, I saw a gigantic painting of the Battle of Yorktown. And it was uh, so shocking to me to see this sort of quintessential uh, American image in in the palace of the French king. So... 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Versailles uh, at that point was really the, the political center of the world. It, France was the most powerful nation, and it was always vying with um, – I think Spain was more on the decline by this point, but certainly not Great Britain. And um, it's interesting to see that that France has always taken an interest, and the French always say we're the big sister to the United States. And I think that that, that is really true. Linguistically, uh, you know, there are so many uh, carryovers or so much French influence in the, in the English language itself that's not particular to the United States, but just to the, the Anglophone world. But from culture, uh, artists, from literature, from uh, our cuisine, I mean, you can't go to any major city in the United States without talking about Cajun cooking or Creole cooking, and that strictly comes from... Um, New Orleans and from the southern, formerly French-speaking parts of the South. Um, so it has had um, a, a real impact. Also, when, since we're in Texas, we can just talk about uh, the French being in East Texas. We, the French were the first to discover the mouth of the Mississippi by coming down from Canada, and they opened up the whole that whole trade area. Texas and matter, you know, um, found because of um, La Salle coming and getting off course and going to, to Matagorda. So they're just on and on. I don't want to belabor the point, but there are many, many, many ways that we don't think about France influencing American culture because it's basically broken down to in this colonial period as Great Britain and Spain. But um, it actually is a very important. If you like the Detroit Pistons or Detroit, where do you think they get the name? It was from the French. All right. Um well, I think you've made an excellent case that maybe I should be spending a little more time on French influence um, and in all the various ways that um, North America is not just the story of a uh, sort of eventual British success, but a mixture of, of cultures that really make the nation. I know you, know, you talk about food and, and Jefferson took another one of his slaves to France to train him as a cook. Um, or eventually a chef. chef. And so um, there's a longstanding uh, influence of the French. Well, I'm going to ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things for every all the experts that we're talking to, I'm asking them to sort of imagine a historical um, Instagram, Instagram account and uh, people creating various hashtags. Uh, and so I was wondering if the French government at this time had an account, uh, what might they say about North America? Um, and how about those involved in the Haitian Revolution? Um, maybe what would their hashtag be uh, to the French? To the French? Or to anyone. Well, I think the, the uh, certainly after Napoleon tries to reinstate slavery, uh, right after the uh, the the French Revolution, we could have a hashtag of uh, liberty, brotherhood, and equality. Hashtag not really. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure about what we would uh, do for the for the Haitian Revolution. I, I'm sorry I didn't get to talk about uh, that. It actually started with a voodoo priest beating the drums to to get the slaves to rise up because they had. Uh, predetermined that, but I think for the uh, Haitians, the Haitian Revolution, I would say hashtag beat the drums, hashtag break our chains. All right, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh-huh.